Would you open your Bibles to James 5? James 5. If you're using one of the copies provided by Gospel Hope Church, you'll find this portion of Scripture on page 1013. And this is the last of our, uh, it looks like I think 12 or 13 parts. I kind of lost track of, of how many messages that we've put together uh, looking at these portions of Scripture that teach us how to love one another. And we began this study last week, and I apologize to a few of the nursery workers. I need to apologize to the rest. I preached way too long last week, and I do not intend to do that today um, by any means. But believe it or not, as long as I preached, we didn't get through all of this passage. So there's still some really important things for us, and I hope this will be helpful and hope it will be an encouragement to you. James 5, and let me begin reading verses 13 uh, through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'm asking a question that I already know the answer to, but I'm still going to put it out there. It's a question that many of us wrestle with, sometimes on a daily basis, and it could be phrased in this way, or maybe others similar to this, but do you ever feel like you are all alone in your struggles, particularly with struggles of a spiritual nature? It may be a sense of failure. You know that you should have done something that either God was speaking into your soul, or maybe even another religious leader that you respect had encouraged you to take a particular path, and you just didn't do it. Maybe it was your parents who growing up said, I need you to do this. And you said, no, I won't. And so there was this rebellion that left you with a sense of failure and disobedience. Or maybe you just struggle with where you are at this point spiritually in your life. Questions, confusion, uncertainty. And and you have this sense that no one else really understands the kinds of things that are taking place in your heart. Maybe you're just frustrated perhaps even so embarrassed by the way you've lived your life to this point that that you feel like, I I just don't even know what to do with this situation and I can't get out of it and I'm not sure where to go. It's so overwhelming and so confusing for me. Maybe there are things in your heart that you say, I don't even want anybody to know. It would be absolutely humiliating for me to tell even my dearest friend or close associate what actually is going on or has gone on. And you know, if you're facing things like that, you also have that dialogue and conversation that runs through your head sometimes where you're kind of like, you know what, I should know better. I do know better. Why is it that I continue to fail in these ways or struggle in these particular ways? Sometimes you say, you know, I'm an adult. You know, in my case, I'm like, I'm 51 years old. I mean, how long will it be before I actually grow up, take responsibility in this particular area of my life, and just do what I'm supposed to do? You know, It's the human condition, isn't it? And the truth is, you're not alone in this kind of struggle. 
And though you often feel like no one else would really understand, if truth be known, if we all got really honest and just put it all out there, we'd start finding far more points of of commonality than difference and isolation, wouldn't we? We're actually designed by our Creator to live in community where we share both the good and the bad. And one of the things that we've been seeing in this study of the love one another passages is that God intends for us to be so vitally, so personally connected to, to one another that nobody's ever truly alone, that nobody's left to themselves to figure it out. And so the passage in front of us today is dealing with difficulties, sufferings, both of a spiritual nature and a physical nature, and the the simple commands that God is putting forward for us to believe and then to practice are designed to keep us connected, to keep us from so despairing of life, feeling as if we're utterly alone, as if nobody else understands and nobody else cares, that, that we just kind of drift away into our own our own living, or worse yet, we take matters into our own hands, as many people in our community have done, and we take our own life. I just continue to wrestle with the reports that roll through on a regular basis, whether it be teens or adults, of people who've so despaired, who feel so isolated, so absolutely hopeless, that they decide, ending my life is the best choice I have at this moment. And I think, oh God, help us. And it's religious people and irreligious people alike. So don't, don't delude yourself into thinking, well, that, you know, that never happened to me. Because after all, I'm, you know, I, I believe in God and I've got a good family or a good church around me. Don't underestimate the power of your suffering or the power of sin. In his kindness, God has designed a strategy for real growth and progress in the Christian life. And it's simple, but it is intensely personal, and it's designed for our good. And that's the paragraph that we just read. And in particular, this morning, we're going to look at verses 15 and 16 and just kind of unpack those in the few minutes that we have together and notice what God calls us to do and practice together. Together. So look at verse 15. And I want you to note with me, first of all, uh, if you want to uh, try to take a few notes, oh, well, I could review and should review since I put that slide together. I'm always surprised by my slides. <laughs> Last week, we looked at a couple of things. The first were the occasions for prayer. Uh, and some of it is suffering or sickness. Uh, there is also the occasion for praise, which we really didn't explore that. But then we notice a very simple practice of prayer and the power of prayer, that when people begin to pray... Uh, God says healing's going to come, forgiveness is going to come, restoration, and some of those things we're going to talk about. So here's big point number one from verse 15. Sin sometimes results in physical illness. Do you see that in the text? As James continues to write, he's, he, first of all, has said, is anyone among you sick? Beginning of verse 14. Then he says, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. We looked at that last week. And so now as we resume, if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven if there's a possibility that sickness is disciplinary. Now, that may seem uh, foreign to some of you, but I I want you to to look at that word disciplinary, and you need to think that that's different from punishment. And there is a difference. Like, when I spanked my children growing up, um, we tried to reinforce that this is discipline. You're not actually paying for your sins. 
partly because that whole disciplinary process was one of the ways we began to communicate their sinfulness and their need of Jesus. Discipline is different from punishment. God, God doesn't just beat up his people because he's really mad at them. No, he actually brings pain as a corrective, as training. And this is one of those passages that opens the door to this possibility that some sickness is disciplinary in nature. It's consistent with passages like 1 Corinthians 11. We've looked at this previously. I think it was even Matt who preached on this as he led us through that study of another one another in that passage. Do you remember this portion where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth? He's correcting the really ugly divisiveness and, and partisan spirit that has crept into the church even as they practice the Lord's table. Supposed to be taking the bread and the cup as an indication of their humble faith and their joy in knowing Jesus, but they turned it into a drunken feast for the rich and an exclusive and hurtful practice for the poor. And Paul actually says, look at the text, verses 29 and 30, if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's really strong discipline, isn't it? God's a good father and sometimes he says to his children, if you persist in this rebellion, it's better for you to come to heaven and live with me than for me to leave you on planet earth any longer. That's like the ultimate spanking, isn't it? David wrote of this in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. He was talking about the the experience that he had prior to his confession. And look at these words. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That is the hand of conviction resting so heavy upon him that he says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And aren't we glad the heat of summer is behind us now, but even these last couple of days where, you know, that hot breeze coming out of the south, it's like, oh, really? Is summer never going to leave? And it saps your energy. And that's what David is saying. My energy was just gone from me because the conviction of the Lord was resting upon me. My sin was unresolved. So there is a strong possibility in this letter that James is writing that some who were sick were actually experiencing the discipline of God. Sin sometimes, sometimes carries with it a disciplinary component. I think it's important, though, for us to remember not all physical affliction is a result of sin. And just very quickly, I want to take you to a story from the Gospels. John wrote this into his account And there was a man who was born blind, and in the, particularly in Jewish thinking, where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, even the disciples of Jesus look at this man and and they see his blindness and they think there are two options. And so they ask him, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Which is a really interesting prospect, isn't it? If he was born blind, what sin could he have done in the womb where God would say, I smite you with blindness because of your sin? But Jesus corrects it, doesn't he? And he actually shows us that not all sin, or not all sickness is a result of sin. And he said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that man was going to experience a powerful healing, and it really stirred the community. And if you're not familiar with that story, you'll just have to go to John 9 and read it later. But I think it's very important for us, lest we look at people who are around us and say, oh, well, They've had this ongoing illness for a long time. What bad things are they doing that none of us knows about? Right, Pastor Lloyd? (laughs) 
Yeah, that would be very discouraging to think. But some is, and that's, that's important for us to consider. But here's what I want you to see. While there is a possibility that sickness is disciplinary, this is the glory of this passage. And look again at the text. There is a clear and, and unqualified promise of God's forgiveness. He doesn't say some of you will be forgiven or if I feel like forgiving on the day you ask, I'll forgive. No, he, he simply is indicating that those who recognize the reality of their sin, whether there's illness accompanying it or not, but those who know their sin, who ask his forgiveness, will be forgiven. And that's part of the reason we love singing about God's forgiveness. It's part of the reason I love so much Matt's little lesson from, from church history. Praise God there were people who finally said, why are we paying for forgiveness when Jesus paid it all? Why do we think that we have to work our way back into God's favor when it's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone that saves us and rescues us from our sins? Oh, that's such good news. And as we read earlier in the Psalms, with God there is forgiveness so that he might be feared. That is, we stand in awe of him, don't we? I don't think it's good to dwell, in our, dwell on our past sins in the sense that we wallow in that and kind of work ourselves into this, this guilt and, and even spiritual paralysis. It's good for us to remember sometimes so that we can be in awe of how great God's forgiveness is. And if that's where a remembrance of your sins will take you, that can be a really healthy exercise. But you need to be careful that you don't get just, just get stuck in your sins. He will be forgiven, James writes to us. That is, your sins will be pardoned. Your guilt will be released. Now, look at verse 16 because he continues it. Therefore, and, and what's that therefore connected to? Well, I think it, it flows right out of the fact that with God there is forgiveness. Therefore, confess your sins, here's a little surprise, to one another. What? And pray for one another that you may be healed. Now let's explore what this for, or, or confession is all about. Sin of any kind always needs to be confessed. Some sin may result in the disciplinary sickness, but even that's designed to get you back to this point of confession. Now notice, uh, I'm going to give you just three characteristics of confession that I see in this text. The first is it needs to be specific. We need to be confessing sin specifically. The word confess itself means to say the same thing. And, and expanding that a little bit, if you think in terms of what is God saying, say the same thing as he says about it. That's the point. You see, we might as a culture or a group decide, well, certain things are sin and certain things are not. And, and so we might not feel a need if we all agree that, you know, we could lie to one another and we could rob banks and we give ourselves that freedom and we could say it's not sin uh, and therefore feel no need to confess the sin, but we're just comparing ourselves to one another and kind of pooling our ignorance, aren't we? Now, when the Bible speaks of confessing sin, it means that you're actually saying the same thing about your thoughts, your words, your actions, your attitudes, whatever it is. You're saying the same thing that God says about it. And if God calls it lying, then it's lying. If God calls it bearing false witness, it's bearing false witness. If God calls it coveting, it's coveting. 
If God calls it adultery or fornication or whatever sin we might be able to pull out of the many lists in the Bible, then that's what we call it. It's important for us to think in terms of confessing our sins specifically. One author writes, it's an open, frank, and full confession. We agree to identify it by its true name and admit that it is sin. It means we don't hide it, we don't ignore it, we don't minimize it, we don't justify it. We don't even rename it to make it sound a little more palatable. We say the same thing about our sin that God says. So let me give you a real simple example. Let's say that you actually lied. And let's say that you lied to your spouse or a family member or a teacher. But you, you feel the conviction and you come to that person that you lied to and you say, hey, I, you know, I, I, I kind of messed up. I fudged on the truth a little bit. I'm sorry. Is that a biblical confession? No, it isn't, isn't it? Although some of us grew up in families or contexts where that would get you by. And if you really want to walk the path of repentance that God is calling you into, you would go to that person and you would say, you know what, I lied to you when I said, and, and then you maybe rehearse that little thing, and that's sin. Will you forgive me? It's as simple and straightforward as that. So we're not using our little cultural terminology that kind of makes it a little softer, a little easier on us. We're owning the sin. We're saying straight up, I'm a liar and I'm in need of your forgiveness. So we confess our sin specifically. Here's the second thought. Go back to the text. Uh, we confess it personally. Notice James says, confess your sins. That is, these are the ways that you have fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, whatever it might be. I didn't love as I should have loved, or I rebelled in this particular way, but it's my sin. And the verb uh, <coughs> before us denotes a confession that is open and full in acknowledging personal guilt. I think Psalm 51 is a very helpful passage for us. And if you want to turn back to the Old Testament and look at it there, I'll put it on the screen in just a moment as well. But again, I think it's really important to have your Bible open, whether it's an electronic copy or a printed copy. But go to Psalm 51. And again, if you're using one of our Gospel Hope Bibles, that uh, psalm is found on page 474. 474. Now, uh, that's a little small on the screen, uh, but I think still clear enough that you could see it. I even want you to notice uh, the opening title. Uh, this is actually part of what, what we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to write. And this is a psalm of David, as you can see. To the choir master, interesting that this would have been sung by the nation of Israel, big groups of people. And he even gives us the occasion, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Do you know that story? It's one of the ugliest moments from David's life. It started when he looked with lust on a woman who was not his wife, sent a servant to call her into his chamber, committed sexual sin with her, if we describe it like God would describe it, and then when he found out she was actually pregnant with his child, sends 
her husband, Uriah, to the front lines of the battle and ultimately has him killed, knows he's going to be killed when he orders him to be positioned there. You see, he's trying to cover his sin, isn't he? And so after many months, God sends the prophet Nathan to David, and David tells him a story about two different men, one who has all the, all the property and cattle and sheep that he could possibly want, and one man who has one little lamb that's very precious to him. The rich guy takes the one lamb of, of the, the poor guy as his own, and David hears a story, and his anger is stirred, righteously so, and, and he's basically saying, you know, that that rich man who stole, he needs to pay and pay dearly. And it's at that point that Nathan the prophet points his finger at David and says, you are the man. And David is just, he's destroyed. And he writes this psalm, which really opens his heart to us. And it actually shows us what the kind of, of personal confession God desires now, notice some things about this psalm as we read through it. I want you to notice uh, that he owns his sin, and he, he describes it in many different ways. And here's, here's a key. He doesn't go into the sordid details of what happened, but he also uses words that are really strong. Again, the contrast between, God, I really messed up, sorry, and God, I have committed transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He uses the word transgressions again, but then verse 4, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's not saying, God, you know, I'm just a man of really strong passions and desires, and though I had other wives, they just aren't enough for me, and after all, you, you, you know what I'm made of, and no, there's no excuse, no qualification like that. He's, he is calling it with the same kind of terminology that God Almighty calls it. And then as he continues, um, he, he humbles himself before God and pleads for his mercy with phrases like this, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me, it's a beautiful prayer, and as he continues, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I mean, this psalm just goes and goes. It's deep, it's intense, it's personal, and it's beautiful for us to know and to use in our own confession to the Lord. When you see words like that, does your heart say, oh, that's exactly what I need to do. I need to take words like that to God and I need to experience the same kind of forgiveness that David is describing here. Look at verse 17. You know what God really desires? Now in David's context, they would often go to the, uh, to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices. And they were commanded of God to do that. And sometimes they would take extravagant sacrifices like entire bulls, big animals, expensive animals. Other times for the poor, all they could do is maybe take a, a little dove. But on this particular day, 
when Nathan comes and David is convicted in his heart, he realizes that the sacrifice that God is looking for is not an animal. The sacrifice that God looks for is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And then look at that last phrase, oh God, you will not despise. And if we were honest, some of us would say, that's what I fear. I'm afraid to come to God because I'm afraid he'll scowl at me. It'll say, how stupid could you be? And sin is stupid, isn't it? How rebellious could you be? And my sin is rebellious, isn't it? How careless, how thoughtless. I mean, we fear that God will say all kinds of things, but the reality is he says, you come to me humbly and honestly, owning your sin, confessing it, calling it the same thing I call it, asking for my forgiveness. I never despise those people. I receive them and forgive so this is what James is directing us to when he, when he calls us to confess our sins. There's more we could say there, but I'll, for the sake of time, and our nursery workers, press on. All right, so sin always needs to be confessed, specifically, personally. Here's the third thing. And sometimes in relationship. And again, I say sometimes because not every sin you commit should or needs to be brought into the light of a relationship. But notice what James is indicating here. There are those occasions. So you go back and look at the text. Verse 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, why the confession to one another? Some of you came out of a, a Catholic background. And you were taught to go to confession, weren't you? Greg, one of them, several others, Steve. And, and you were taught that you had to go to the priest or whoever had been appointed there, and you would confess, and they would speak words of absolution or forgiveness and give you some other things to do, and you went away, and it gave you a sense that you were forgiven. And now that, now that you understand God's word, you're saying, why did we ever do that? Is, is James kind of indicating that we need a, we need a personal... Uh, uh, a personal confessor, someone to absolve us from sin? No, that's not at all what he's saying. Some of you say, I, I thought I can go directly to Christ as my high priest. Yes, absolutely. But this, if you want to use the terminology of, of high priest as Jesus is, this word comes from him um, that in the same way that my, my illness uh, sometimes needs the additional prayers of others around me, my physical illness from those earlier verses there, Sometimes our spiritual weakness and failings need the, the prayer support of others around us. I love Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, not a spirit of self-righteousness, not a spirit of condemnation or judgment, not even a spirit of, really, how could you do this? I thought you knew better. No, a spirit of gentleness. And then look at that next sentence. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, here's, here's what God is trying to create. A community of faith that understands its sin deeply, personally. I mean, to the place where it just overwhelms us. We're broken in spirit like David was uh, in reading Psalm 51. Yet at the same time, we say, this is the safest place in the world for me to come with all of my sin and struggle. 
First of all, because I'm in a group of people who are also sinning and struggling and looking to Jesus every day. This is a place where, in one sense, we should never be surprised and shocked when somebody right next to us says, can I just share something with you? I am really struggling with, and then they name a particular sin. There really should never be that. (gasps) What? Not at Gospel Hope. You know what? If you really think that way... You've been living in a hole somewhere. You are naive in a pitiful way. Now, we're, we're not, we never glorify sin. We're not even soft on sin. But we are gentle with one another in this fight against our sin. The Son of God had to shed His blood on Calvary's cross to rescue us. That ought to tell us how powerful and awful sin is. So don't minimize the sacrifice of Jesus by acting shocked and dismayed when somebody comes to you and says, I'm really struggling and I've done this and that and the other. But rather, you embrace them immediately and say, oh, brother or sister, we need to go to Jesus right now. He's the only one who's powerful enough, but he is powerful enough. He loves you more than you know. His grace superabounds even this great sin. Let's pray. So Galatians 6.1 is kind of the other side. It's if you see somebody in sin, you go to them. You seek to restore them. You recognize they're broken and bruised and and battered by sin, that they may not survive if they don't get help. But going back to, to James 5, what he is saying is when you know you're the one who's bruised and broken and battered by sin, you call for your brothers and sisters around you to say, would you pray for me? i got to be healed. What keeps us from confessing? Two big things come to my mind, and I'm sure there are other things we could add to this list or subcategories. The first is pride, isn't it? I mean, we, we think kind of crazy thoughts. They're, they're reasonable. Every one of us understands it because these are our thoughts. But, but sometimes it's the pride that says, I, I can't let other people see my weakness. Sorry, it's already showing. We've been seeing it, just like you're seeing mine. It, it just inevitably comes out. So let's quit trying to act like We're better than we are, healthier than we are, stronger than we are, and just be humble and honest. Or you might say, it's not that I'm afraid to let others see my weakness, I'm just actually embarrassed that I continually struggle with the same sin. Some of you face that, don't you? Maybe you even have a prayer partner and you've shared things in the past and you're just like, I I just, I don't want to tell them again. I'm, I'm embarrassed. It's so stupid. It's immature. It's It's a thousand things we could describe it. The second thing that comes to my mind is fear. Fear of what others will think and then how they will respond. Fear of what it might cost as I confess my sin. Fear that my spouse or my friend or my child will think less of me because I admit a spiritual failure. Where do pride and fear ultimately come from? Is that the Holy Spirit at work in you? Is that Jesus the, the king of kings and the king of grace speaking to you, saying, be careful. Now that comes from your own flesh. It comes from darkness. The cross already dealt with our pride, didn't it? I've said this several times, but it's appropriate to say it again. You want to know how bad a sinner you are? Look at what God the Father did to God the Son on the cross. That's the measure of your sin. Yeah, and I'm there too. You want to know how bad a sinner Danny Brooks is? 
Just look at the cross. Jesus had to do that because of all I have done in my life. So the cross just takes all the air out of our pride, doesn't it? I mean, is there a greater word of condemnation that God the Father could speak over my sin and yours than how he condemned Jesus? Fear? Cross removed all fear, didn't it? Jesus was forsaken so that you and I wouldn't be. You don't have to be afraid that God will turn his back on you because he turned his back on Jesus at the cross. So the Lord is actually building a different kind of community, a different kind of environment for us to humbly and boldly confess our sins, first to him and then to others. What's the effect of this kind of confessing? There's a really neat story in the book of Acts, Acts 19. I forgot to include that there, but if you go to Acts 19 and read these verses, uh, this, this is what you find. God was work at work powerfully, and the story <coughs> unfolds that many of those who were now believers came. So, did you catch that? They are already believers, but there's more junk in their lives, sin that needs to be dealt with, and here's what they do. They came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's quite an investment in, in magic books. Verse 20, look at this. Here's what happens when the people of God begin to confess their sins to one another and, and forsake it and press forward in faith. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And isn't that ultimately what we're praying God will do in our neighborhoods? I mean, don't we want the word of God to, con to continue increasing here and prevail mightily? I've said often, I'll say it again, it's not about building a large church right here. But it is, uh, it is ministry that we are engaging in together in the hopes that God will save thousands and thousands of people who are in spiritual darkness, who are prisoner to their sin, who are so fearful of, of the God they know created them and don't know how to rightly relate to them. I mean, we want to see them just brought into the light and into the love of Jesus Christ. And part of the way he's going to do that is as those people watch us as a community function in an extraordinary way where we're really honest and open about our failings and sins, but there's not self-righteous judgment and condemnation. We don't gossip and talk about it. We actually embrace one another and say, you know, the first thing I'm going to do with you is pray for you. Pray for you. So the word of the Lord continued to incre increase and prevail mightily. It's directly tied to this kind of confession. Now finally, here's, here's the command of verse 16. Praying for one another is God's means of healing. And the command after confessing to one another is pray for one another. That's God's instruction. Again, he doesn't say judge one another, criticize one another, discipline one another. Well, there are occasions where we need to discipline one another, but not those who are confessing their sins. No, we join in a prayer that is conversation with God that says this is a serious problem. My brother is hurting. My sister is devastated by this. There may even be physical consequences connected to it, but God, we are praying together that you would so work, so bless, so restore that this person would be healed. Healed. What is God doing through this? 
Uh, there are many things, but just four things that, that immediately began coming to my mind. First of all, God is providing a place of safety. In the body of Christ, he wants you to feel absolutely safe, to, to put even the ugliest stuff on the table, and maybe it's just you and one other person. Maybe it's a small group, ladies' Bible studies going now, men's Bible study this week. We've got community group going on Thursday nights, and we'll break that up into smaller groups. There are all kinds of contexts where you, you should uh, consider practicing this, but it's with a view that as you confess, others come around you and say, oh, let's pray. Let's pray for you. I know that's killing you. Thanks for sharing. You know, we love you, and, and we're going to be here to not only pray with you, but to follow up, and we'll try to hold you accountable and encourage you along the way, but thanks. Let's pray. Can you imagine a place that's that safe where you could just say, I'm getting killed and here it is. How about this, a place of acceptance? Again, because we're all at the foot of the cross, aren't we? I'm not a pastor because I'm a super saint and I know more than anybody else in the room. I'm a pastor because God in his grace and mercy called me to this role and you have a role in this church and it's of mercy that you're there. We're accepted because of Jesus, not our performance. We're accepted because his righteousness is perfect and God granted it to us as a gift, not because we you know, had a, a perfect record this past week or this past month. God's providing a place of love. It's a love like many in our world and community don't really know. That, that's why there's so much competition in neighborhoods. Your neighbor pulls a new boat into the driveway and what do you feel like? Oh, man. My three-year-old boat is suddenly out of date. I, I, and I want that guy's respect. So, you know, honey, we're going shopping for a new boat. What a terrible way to live. Where you're always trying to measure up to the expectations of others. Where you're always trying to gain the acceptance of others because of your stuff or your career path or the size of your paycheck or, or the newness of your clothes or your style that you choose. And I just think, man, that, that is a terrible way to live. And it destroys you. And some of you have been destroyed by that. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a family, and that's what the church is, a family of people who just say, oh, Jesus is everything. He's paid the price of our sins. God has given us his perfect righteousness. He's assured us there is already an inheritance in heaven reserved for us. He calls it an incorruptible, undefiled, and never fading inheritance. So happy for you to have the boat. Probably never getting one myself. But that's not the basis of our love for one another. a place of safety, acceptance, love, and then ultimately healing. And I love this picture. There's one little problem with it, which I'll get to in just a moment. But, you know, ultimately, James is trying to direct us back to the Christ who lived and died and rose again. He is really bringing us back to the cross in a big way, saying, you want to be healed? There's a way to be healed. It comes as you confess your sin as you even open yourself up humbly and transparently before others and say, I'm a mess, I'm hurt, hurting, I'm broken, will you pray for me? As, as a body of believers, you come together and pray for one another. And, and prayer in and of itself is an act of faith in God and to God, isn't it? And all of us, here's my one problem, and I looked and looked, but I couldn't find a picture of a cross with a bunch of people around it. But the cross is where you start personally, and you know what's neat to me? As you get there personally, you find there are a bunch of other people who've come right here. Come right here. 
And ultimately, that's what Gospel Hope Church is, just a gathering of people who found the foot of the cross, who are astonished at God's mercy, his, his desire to forgive, his desire to heal, his desire to make us whole, and we just, we're just gonna stay right here at the foot of the cross. No greater joy. Have you known God's healing? Have you known the healing of your sin? See, when we're gathered at the foot of the cross, we're all reminded that we were once under God's condemnation. But then he directed that all to Jesus, and so there's none left for us. The wrath that we earned for our sin, he poured out on Jesus, spent it all on him, there's none left for us. What remains for us at the cross? Forgiveness, acceptance, eternal life, It's a long list of benefits. What an awesome privilege. So because of that cross, I'm pointing to the back screen. That's kind of odd, isn't it? So because of that cross, happily we come and say to one another, will you pray for me? I love this quotation that I found. It's actually included in a book titled Making Peace, and I think the author has actually quoted somebody else Um, but since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up his heart to God and he finds forgiveness of all sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. For some of you, your pride is going to keep you from living at that really blessed place. And you're going to continue to hide and cover and act like everything's okay. And the reality is you need the love and, and prayer ministry of people around you to actually be healed. And we want you to find it. When we conclude here in just a minute, um, I want you to know that the opportunity to be prayed for right now um, is going to be open. And I, I'm going to be here couple of others. Kevin's at the back. Of course, you'll probably be at the keyboard playing for a minute, but there are other brothers and sisters all around you. Matt's here, and, and even though we have coffee and water and some other snacks in the lobby, that's not nearly as important to us as having the privilege of just praying with you, of being a blessing, a source of encouragement to you. And, and it may be a 30-second prayer, just something relatively small, but you just, you're feeling it right now. I, I need somebody to pray with me. It may actually require a little longer conversation together, and you may say today's not the day, but could we at least talk about it and set up a time? What joy that would give us, what blessing it would bring, what healing, the very things we need. So as I pray, and I want you to be praying to God just speaking to him from your heart and soul, whatever he's impressed on you at this moment. And some, it may be, start with confession of sin. God, I've offended you, and I need your forgiveness. It may be, Lord, I'm just hurting. Not even sure where to begin, but I'm, I'm praying right now, Lord, that you would begin that healing process in me and just show me what the next step is. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Father, first of all, we want to thank you for your steadfast love. In mercy, you have pursued us. 
Our sin has driven us far away from you. And if you had left us in that sin, all of us would have been happy to remain right there, never to see you, never to speak to you, never to hear from you again. But in love, you have come looking for us. Thank you. There are some here today who need to be healed. Some actually are experiencing physical symptoms of the great conviction that you have placed upon their hearts. Oh, let them turn to you as David did, even from the darkness of his terrible sins of of adultery and murder. But he found forgiveness. He received mercy. So we're confident that our sins, whatever they might be, as great and ugly, as dark and heinous as they might be, there's more mercy and forgiveness in you than there is sin in us at this moment. So call your people. Call your people into that forgiveness and call these dear ones into healing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.